The scripture reading this morning is from 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 10. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we come before you and uh, we pray for Pastor Rebecca as she she shares your word to our hearts. So we pray uh, your blessings, your anointing upon her. May she be filled with the Holy Spirit to speak your truth. And for us, uh, the listeners, we pray that our hearts will be open, our ears attentive to our word. So we may put that into practice in our life. We long to hear your voice, Jesus, and we pray in your name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. I wonder when in life you find yourself praying the most. I'm embarrassed to say that I find sometimes my most heartfelt prayers come when I'm on an airplane. Now, I love traveling, and I love airports, and generally I love being on planes, but there's something about turbulence that makes me feel sure that I'm going to die. 
Just a few weeks ago, I went to see my family for Christmas, and we had pretty bad turbulence almost all the whole way there. And you know it's bad when they ask the flight attendants to sit down and strap in. <laughs> now, some people seem so calm when this happens. I look around and I see them sleeping and watching their movies. They don't seem to be bothered at all. Maybe you're one of these people. There was even one lady during my flight who, despite the plane pitching up and down, calmly got up to use the washroom, which she probably shouldn't have. I'm that person gripping the armrests, eyes closed, and praying hard. And what do these prayers look like? They usually go something like this, God, please stop the turbulence, please stop the turbulence. And I like to remind him that, you know, in scripture, he calmed the wind and the waves, so this would be very easy for him to do. This time, though, during this particular flight, for some reason, I found myself praying something different. I prayed, God, please give me peace in the midst of this and help me to trust you. And everything was still at least inside me. The anxiety calmed and I went back to my movie and I was okay for the rest of the flight. This morning we're continuing our series on prayer by looking at the prayer of a woman named Hannah found in 1 Samuel chapter two. Now Hannah's stories is one of my favorites in scripture. It's one that I come back to again and again because it reminds me that God cares about the circumstances of my life and that I can come to him about anything. Hannah's story and her prayer invites us to remember who it is that actually hears us when we pray. To remember, first of all, that we can come to God just as we are. Second, to remember what God is like. And third, to remember to remember. And like most of our prayers, especially the desperate ones, Hannah's prayer comes rooted in a story which we see in chapter one. So let's take a closer look at her story and then her prayer together. So just before her prayer in chapter two, in chapter one we have the story of Elkanah and his wife Hannah. And on the other side, later on in chapter two, we have the story of the family of Eli the priest and his two sons. All this takes place after the exodus of Egypt under Moses and after the conquest of Cana under Joshua. The people of Israel are finally in the land that has been promised to them. This was the time the judges ruled and Israel did not yet have a king. Our story unfolds in the city of Shiloh in the land of Canaan. Shiloh was just north of Jerusalem, which you should be able to see on the map there. It was an important religious center for Israel at this time. The Ark of the Covenant was kept there, and Psalm 78 speaks about the Lord's tent being at Shiloh. During this period, a festival to Yahweh, maybe the Feast of Tabernacles, was held every year there. In chapter 1, we learn that a man named Eli was a priest of the Lord at Shiloh. He was likely the high priest and maybe even a judge at this time, and he served alongside his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. But although Shiloh was a place devoted to God, things in this place were not as they should have been. Eli's sons abused their power. For one, they would take the sacrificial meat from the worshipers before the sacrifice happened to eat it for themselves, which was not permitted. 
and they would even sleep with the woman who served at the tent of meeting. Somehow their father Eli seemed unable to stop them, and God would challenge him about this later on in chapter 2, saying, Why do you honor your sons more than me? This provides a contrast with the family that we'll look at today, the most important to our story, the family of Elkanah who lived in Ramah. Now, Elkanah had two wives. His first wife's name was Hannah, and his second was Paniah. We're told that Hannah was the wife that he loved the most, but she was barren, while Paniah had many sons and daughters. And because children were so important to this culture, it's possible that Elkanah took a second wife um, because Hannah was unable to conceive to ensure that his family line continued, which I'm sure would have been all the more painful to his first wife. Now, as was the custom of the time, Elkanah would take his family each year to Shiloh to worship Yahweh and to offer sacrifices to him. And these yearly trips were a time of feasting. Often after the meat was sacrificed, a portion was given back to the worshiper to eat. So each year, the family would celebrate together with this large meal. We don't really have in our tradition this idea of yearly pilgrimage anymore. But you might want to picture a Lunar New Year celebration that we're celebrating now, or maybe a big Christmas gathering, an important yearly tradition with all the feasting that came along with it. But as can happen all too often at family gatherings, and maybe you've experienced this yourself, there was tension around the dinner table. After sitting down, Elkanah would portion out the meat to each member of his family, his wives, his sons, and daughters, and he would give a double portion to Hannah because we read he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. But despite her husband's love, these yearly trips and these dinners in particular were painful for Hannah. She watched over the years as Pania's family grew larger and larger with more and more sons and daughters being born while she remained childless. I wonder if you resonate with this at all, if you've ever longed for something that you never seem to get. Somehow seeing other people receive what you want makes it even harder. And to make matters worse, Pania would use these meals as an occasion to rub it in her face. We read that she would provoke Hannah until Hannah would cry and be unable to eat. Elkanah would try to comfort his wife, saying, don't I mean more to you than ten sons? But barrenness in the ancient Near East was a source of shame and of stigma, and Anna was Hannah was inconsolable. Now this year, on this particular trip to Shiloh, Hannah got up after what must have been an especially difficult meal and went out by herself to the Lord's sanctuary. Here she cried and she prayed. She was in so much distress that her lips moved with no sound coming out. And as she cried, she poured out her heart to the Lord. She vowed that if God gave her a son, she would give him back to God for his whole life, and no razor would be used on his head. This probably implies a Nazarite vow, which is mentioned in the book of Numbers, a person who is especially set apart for God. Hannah was imagining what would be when this son was born, pouring out her heart and telling God what she would do when the request was granted. Now all this time, Eli the priest was sitting by the doorpost of the tent 
and he was watching her. Seeing her in such distress with her lips moving and no sound coming out, he wrongly assumed she was drunk. Put away your wine, he tells her. And this brings us to our first point. When you pray, remember you can come to God as you are, in the midst of whatever circumstance you find yourself in. Author and pastor Eugene Peterson believes that Eli thought she was drunk because this wasn't the way that normal, respectable people pray. For Eli, the normal way of prayer meant ritual and sacrifice and was led by a priest, but Hannah doesn't do it the right way. She goes to the temple in all her mess and trusts that she will be heard. I find in my life growing up as a Christian in the church, I've always often felt a bit guilty about how I prayed, like I've never quite mastered the right way of doing it. I often go straight to the God please help me without any of maybe the proper lead up. But we learn from Hannah that we don't need a formula to approach God. It's okay to call out to him just as we are in the middle of our mess. And it is these that Richard Foster in his book on prayer calls simple prayers that provide an important foundation for our prayer lives. In simple prayer, according to Foster, we bring ourselves before God just as we are, warts and all. Like children before a loving father, we open up our hearts and make our requests we do not try to sort things out, the good from the bad. We simply and unpretentiously share our concerns and make our petitions. We tell God, for example, how frustrated we are with that coworker at the office or the neighbor down the street. We ask for food, favorable weather, and good health. Simple prayer involves ordinary people bringing ordinary concerns to a loving and compassionate father. There is no pretense in simple prayer. And in this posture, we pour out our hearts to the God who is greater than our hearts and who knows all things. It's interesting that this kind of prayer is actually the most common we see in the Bible. Moses complains to God about the people he's leading. King David expresses his raw emotion to God in the Psalms. And Hannah asks God for a son. In prayer, we can come to God in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, knowing that we will be heard by our Heavenly Father. So when you pray, remember the one you're praying to you, that you can come to him just as you are. Looking back now at, to the sanctuary in Shiloh, here we see Hannah, maybe kneeling on the ground, pouring, tears pouring down her face as she wordlessly pours out her heart to God, with Eli looking on. And Eli says to her, how long will you stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not a very pastoral response. <laughs> I wonder if we ever respond in this way, judging people by what we see on the surface while God knows their hearts. But Hannah explains, not so, my Lord. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. It's interesting that the word here used for wicked, literally meaning worthless, will be the same word the author uses later on in chapter 2 to describe Eli's own sons. They were wicked or worthless men. Eli mistook Hannah to be what his sons actually were. Realizing his mistake, 
Jeremiah tells her, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Hannah's face is no longer downcast, and she leaves and goes to have something to eat. She trusts that her prayer will be heard. And we're told that the Lord remembered Hannah, and as she had asked, she became pregnant. Her shame is lifted, and her position in society and in her family are restored. Now, Hannah won't go back to that temple in Shiloh until the child is weaned, which may have been even about three years at the time, before returning to present him to the Lord. Later, she brings him to Shiloh and presents him to Eli. This son, whom she would name Samuel, would grow up to become a prophet and a priest and have an instrumental role in establishing the kingship in Israel. It's this Samuel who will anoint both Saul and David as kings. Now Hannah returns home and goes on to have other sons and daughters, but each year she would return to Shiloh to bring Samuel a new robe, a yearly reminder of God's action in her life and how he remembered her in her place of pain. And in response, in chapter 2, she prays another prayer, this time a prayer of thanksgiving, which brings us to our second point. When you pray, remember who it is that hears your prayer. Ultimately, Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving isn't meant to be a how-to of prayer, but it does mean to show us something about the one who hears us when we pray, and something about his purposes in our world. His dreams are bigger than ours. Verse 1. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. Horn at this time was often used as a metaphor for strength, and the raising of a horn a symbol of victory. God had given her victory over those who taunted her, mainly her rival Penea. He has lifted her shame. Verse 2, There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. In scripture, this image of rock or mountain is sometimes used of God's strength and his sovereignty. There's no other rock like Yahweh. There are no other places of true security. It is those who trust in him who are kept secure. Those who place their trust in other things will be disappointed in the end. Verse 3, do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. This upside-down motif is a way of expressing God's sovereign rule over all of life. He's a God who sees people's hearts and raises up those of low position. It's those who put their security in their own strength who will find themselves being put to shame. Her prayer continues, For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. 
Unlike ancient, other ancient Near Eastern gods, Yahweh wasn't a regional god, but he was one who held the cosmos together. The very pillars of the earth are his. In verse 9 and 10, he will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. And the prayer finishes with this other reference to horn, a victory, and the coming of an anointed king. Her prayer is also prophetic in some ways. Her son Samuel will usher in the monarchy in Israel. And later, another young woman named Mary would make this prayer her own about her promised son, Jesus. Hannah's prayer shows us something about the one who hears our prayers. Hannah names God as rock because of his strength and sovereignty. Putting our trust in him is worthwhile. People may turn to other sources of strength, but they will be disappointed. He's a God who is special concern for the poor and for those in need. He isn't impressed by prestige the way that we can be, but he desires to lift up the lowly. And he's a God who reigns. Hannah's prayer tells us that the earth is the Lord's. And while Hannah was praying regarding a very immediate concern in her life, God had something even bigger in mind. She asked for a child, and God provided a prophet who would anoint kings. God's dreams were bigger than hers. And his answer to her prayer was part of a larger story, one that Hannah didn't even catch a glimpse of at that time. What's the bigger story of God's work in our world today? This is worth remembering. Now, a question that comes to mind, it's an important question to ask. Well, you know, Hannah's prayer was answered, but what about when we don't seem to receive an answer from God? What about when it doesn't seem like God's at work in our world? I'm sure there were many other women for the time who asked for sons. Was Hannah the only one God heard? This passage doesn't give us a straight answer. It wasn't included here to answer that question. History in the Old Testament was written more to show how God was fulfilling his covenant with Israel. But this passage does remind us that God is someone we can trust. He's a God who is present and who hears. And I find it helpful to remember when, what God is like when I'm faced with situations of seeming unanswered prayer. When we're hit with turbulence in life, sometimes what God is asking of us is to ride it out, but to invite him to calm the fear, to remember that he is not absent and that we can trust him with our very lives. Sometimes instead of asking the question, why isn't God answering my prayer? It can be helpful to ask, where is God in the midst of this? Author and speaker Marva Dawn talks about the need to distinguish between what she calls truth and reality in our lives. Um, she's a woman who struggled with chronic illness and disabilities her whole life, had multiple surgeries, and she writes out of this perspective. I read one book by her called How to Be Well When You're Ill writing from the experience of the breakdown of her physical body. She addresses suffering by saying that we have a choice to respond out of what feels true compared to what is true. Reality, according to Dawn, is that which is on the surface, which is the very real pain and chaos of our lives. Truth lies in the bigger story, 
the truth of Jesus' presence and his working in our world. An example of this is in the biblical story of Joseph, which you might know. If you remember the story, out of jealousy, his brothers sell him into slavery. But God uses this to put him in a place of influence in Egypt. And eventually, he would help his family during a time of famine. Joseph says to his brothers, You intended this to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is not being done, the saving of many lives. In another story in the Gospels, Jesus is out on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples when a storm hits, and he calms the wind and the waves. And I think his question for us today is the same as it was for them. Why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? God promises to be always present with us by his spirit. And he's also present and at work with us, with us like in our community as well. In my own life, I've seen him bringing someone along just for a word of encouragement at a timely moment, or God bringing a key person along when I need them. The fact that God is with us makes a difference, even if our circumstances don't immediately change. When you pray, remember who it is that hears your prayer. And the final point, and this is a short one, remember to remember. Hannah went back to Shiloh each year to bring a robe to her son. This would be a yearly reminder to her of the miracle that God had done. Her prayer of thanksgiving was actually also a way for her to keep in touch with this larger truth of God working in the world, Worship as a way of remembering. Worship itself is actually mentioned seven times in her story in chapter one. And today, our prayers of adoration and thanksgiving can also be a way of collectively remembering. What's interesting, as I mentioned earlier, is that another young mother will later take this prayer of thanksgiving and make it her own. She'll apply it, she'll apply it to her situation to remember what God has done in the past and what he may yet do in the future. Mary's Magnificent in Luke is modeled on Hannah's prayer, a prayer that she likely heard a lot growing up, a prayer that taught her something about what God is like. So for us, remembering can also be remembering what God has done in Scripture, because he's the same today as he was then. So when you pray, remember to remember. Overall, this story and Hannah's prayer are invitations to us to pray and to remember, to pray that we can come to God as we are. We don't need to put on a show or to have it all together. To pray, remember, remembering who it is we are actually praying to, that he's trustworthy and that he cares about our struggles and that he promises to always be with us. For myself, I think God has often helped me to grasp these larger truths as I've learned to trust him with smaller things. My panicked prayers during a plane ride can actually be a practice of trust for when life hits me with much bigger things. To know that God is with us can become the deeper truth that underlies all the turbulence of our day-to-day reality. And we learn from Hannah's prayer to pray, remembering that our prayers of thanksgiving and worship can also be a way to remember. And remembering what God has done in the past can help us to trust him in the future. Looking back at our community here at FBC, I think God has been with us in many ways. 
Our displacement has certainly been a journey and we've gone through a pandemic, but we're still here. God has given us the space to meet in, even with a place for fellowship after the service, which we haven't always had. I think one moment that sticks in my mind from this past year is when we had the service on the beach in June with the baptisms. God's at work in our community even without a building. What might he do in our midst this year? And how does remembering what he's done in the past shape our prayers for the future? I'd like to close us this morning just with a simple prayer exercise. I'd like for you to just to take a moment to remember. Think of one way that you've seen God present in your life or in our community this past year. And then take time to commit this coming year to him, inviting him to be at work for his good purposes. I'll just give you a couple of minutes to do this, and then I'll close this in prayer. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you for the way that you have been at work in history and in each of our lives. We pray that you would make us more and more aware of your presence and your action in our lives each day. And we ask that we would grow in our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.